it is probably the song that Carly Simon is most identified with. It's an interesting song because it's a, it's a critical evaluation of a self-absorbed lover who Simon asserts, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you. The uh, subject, the, the identity of the subject has long remained a mystery. She's never openly revealed it. But there's been a lot of uh, thought about who is so vain that he thinks a song that's writing about his vanity thinks the song is about him. She, was, uh, had, she had recently been married to James Taylor, and she asserts it's definitely not James Taylor. Some other guesses have been David Bowie, David Cassidy, Cat Stevens, Mick Jagger. I think everybody thinks, however, that it's Warren Beatty. So that's, the, that's everybody's best guess. She did tell Howard Stern in an interview who the person was, and Howard Stern replied, it, there's an odd aspect about it. He's not that vain. So any rate, in case you haven't heard the song, she begins by saying, you walked into a party like you were walking onto a yacht. Your hat strategically dipped below one eye. Your scarf was apricot. You had one eye in the mirror as you watched yourself gavotte. That's a French dance. All the girls dreamed that they'd be your partner, that they'd be your partner. You're so vain, you probably think the song is about you, don't you? And as I said, it's been a mystery over the years who Simon was referring to. Um, about who's so vain that they would think the song is about you. But what if it's not about you? What if the song really isn't about you? There's so many Christians today that think God's highest goal is the salvation of all men. But what if it's not? And there are so many Christians that think God saved them primarily so they could enjoy a future of happiness and elation a happy eternity, but what if that's not why God saved you? And there's so many people that think that they have been saved because as God invited all men to come to salvation, they used their great wisdom and skill. They, they wisely chose him and accepted his offer. But what if salvation was not first and foremost about you at all? Let's take our Bibles and turn to where we left off last week in Romans 8.28. <coughs> Romans 8.28. <coughs> now last week I told you this, I was trying to do three verses and it just got so big I had to divide it into two sermons. So we only managed to get through one verse last week and I apologize for that because like I said there's 433 verses in Romans. It would take me eight and a half years to get through the book if we did it one verse at a time. We're not doing that much more today. We're only taking two verses. But last week in Romans 8:28, it says, uh, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Uh, when certain things take place in our life, uh, some of those things are just simply bad. They're, they're simply evil. It's not that God is using odd things and using making good out of them. He's using sometimes evil things, hateful things, mistakes, errors, even our sins. And it's not that these ever become good or in the end that they were good. They remain evil, they remain bad, but God is weaving a tapestry. He weaves our mistakes into his great plan for us. And everything that we're called to suffer is truly suffering. It really is bad, but God is using that for our ultimate good. Now, from a proximate perspective, 
we don't see those actions as being purposeful or useful at all because they're bad. We just face it. They are bad. But from an eternal perspective, we can see that God uses those bad things for our ultimate good. And that's an important, important point for us to grasp if we were to understand anything about the providence of God. Not all things are good. And Paul's not um, an illusion, illusionist to say that, there, that all things are good. He's just simply saying that all things God works together for our good, for those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So no matter what our situation, our suffering, our persecution, our sinful failures, our, our pain our lack of faith, all of those things while remaining in and of themselves bad, not good, wrong, painful, sinful, whatever, God still uses those um, for our ultimate victory and our ultra, ultimate blessing. Of course, the corollary of that truth is that nothing can come into our life which God has not first ordained, that he does not first um, allowed to come. He, he allows harm to come into our life, but he knows ultimately he will use those circumstances for our good. So that takes us to our next verse, but let's back up again to 828. For we know that in all things, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he has predestined, he has called. And those whom he has called, he has justified. And those whom he has justified, he has also glorified. We call this the golden chain. It's sometimes known as the ordo salutis. And the first word, probably the most, actually the most important in this passage here, has to do with foreknowledge, that God foreknows. He's aware of things. But when we talk about God's foreknowledge, we're not just talking about his precognition. You know, obviously, one of the things that makes God God is he is omniscient. He knows all things. And so it's, it's foolish to say that just because he knows all things that he knows ahead of time. I mean, that's an obvious conclusion, but that's not what the text is talking about. He's not talking about because he knows all things, he knows what's going to happen. There's a group of theologians which are called Arminians who take this term foreknowledge to mean that God looks down through the corridor of time and because he's omniscient, he foresees, he sees ahead those who are going to exercise faith in him and he chooses those people who are going to exercise faith in him for salvation. This completely misses the biblical teaching on this subject on several fronts. And the first of that, first of all, is that foreknowledge has to do with a relationship. It has to do with um, knowledge about someone. For instance, we have in Genesis that Adam knew Eve. Now, that doesn't mean that he became aware of things about her that he didn't know before, although if you're married, you find that out every single day. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking... He's not, he's not talking about just simply awareness. He's talking about that uh, he, he, he knows her, the, he's, he's familiar with her person. So similarly, when the Scripture states that God knows us, he means more than just simply he's aware that you exist. 
I mean, that's obvious, right? Because he's omniscient, he obviously knows that you exist. So to say that he knows you, it would be redundant if all that meant, if all foreknowledge meant was that he has precognition of something. So when God says in Hosea, I knew you when you were in the desert, he's not saying, I was aware of you. That's obvious. He's saying, I was caring for you. I was, I was guiding you. And Amos 3.2, um, God says, you only have I known among all the nations of the earth. So he's not talking about the fact that he's aware of Israel and he's not aware of everybody else. If God is omniscient, he knows. He knows all of the other people. So when he says, you only have I known among all the families of the earth, he's talking about you only have I been in this special relationship with of all the families of the earth. Not that he's not aware that these others exist. So Paul is asserting here more than precognition. Um, He's not just saying that God is aware of you, but that he chooses to save, and not just that he chooses to know. John Stott says, if God predestines people because they're going to believe, the ground of their salvation is in themselves and in their merit instead of in him and his mercy, whereas Paul, Paul's whole emphasis in Romans 8 is on God's free initiative of grace. The faith God foresees is the faith he creates. Again, the, the primary interest here is that not that God knows what his creatures are going to do. The primary interest here is not in the creature. The primary interest in this text is, is God. It's what, what God's actions are, what God does, not his awareness of what people do. So you look at the rest of these five terms, they're all having to do with what God does. God foreknows, God predestines, God calls, God justifies, God glorifies. The, the subject here is God, not people, not, not individuals. So it's, it's not the actions of certain people that he foreknows, it's the people themselves. You follow me on that? He's not, his foreknowledge is not related to the action of those people. His foreknowledge is related to the people themselves. And, and those people are the ones that God fixes his special attention upon them and loves them savingly. So foreknowledge has to do what's in the mind of God, not what's in the mind of people. Um, it's, uh, salvation is not initiated by a person's decision to receive the Lord. Now, don't misunderstand me. When we first hear of God and we come to faith, what's first from our perspective is the initiation of faith, that we exercise faith. But you'll notice that's not even in the list here, the exercise of faith, because that has to do with our response to God. And the, the, the main idea here is that God initiates, God takes the action, which then leads to our responding in faith. So it's true that from our perspective, we take the initial steps towards salvation in response to God, but repentant faith does not initiate, does not begin in us. It initiates with God. So from God's perspective, from God's plan of salvation, what initiates salvation is God's foreknowledge, his actions towards us first. 
Now, so he's certainly able to look down through the corridors of time and see who's going to accept him and, initi- and, uh, and place their, their faith in him. But to believe then that God is obligated when he sees faith in someone makes the person the initiator of salvation and not God. And that is both unbiblical and illogical because it argues that, that God is dependent upon us before he can act. And in such a scheme, God's initiative would be eliminated and grace completely null and void because God would have to act in response to our faith. And there's absolutely nothing in carnal man's nature which would prompt him to turn to God because carnal man is an act of rebellion against God. The unsaved person is blind. He is dead. Um, He has absolutely no source of saving faith within himself. I'm talking about the unredeemed person. Um, The scripture says, natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Um, 2 Corinthians 4.4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. John 6.27, Jesus says, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. But lest that be misunderstood to think that that he's leaving the possibility open for anyone randomly to come to him, he he extends the argument to say, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now Paul goes on to say that this faith does not originate with us. The faith that we have to respond to the offer of God is actually in itself from God. And we learn that from Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this, that faith, is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God and not of works, lest anyone should boast. So even the faith that we exercise in response to the message, in response to God's, is a gift itself from God. It doesn't originate within us. God's foreknowledge is therefore more closely identified with what we would call foreordination. He's not just simply aware, that foreknowledge, not not being aware, but actually being the cause of. God foreordains. He sees in advance. He ordains in advance. And that's what Peter was talking about when he said in 1 Peter 1, 2, that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. That's pretty powerful case-closed argument, isn't it, that, that it begins with God. Now, the second term is really the one that everybody gets their hackles up, and that is the term predestination. And it's the one that bothers most people, although truly the thing that bothers us about predestination is more closely associated with foreknowledge, not with predestination by itself. The term predestination, that God chooses the destiny pre destiny of those whom he has called, who are, um, for, through his foreknowledge, are called to be made like Jesus. So uh, technically, that's what he's talking about. And the reality is, we hate the whole concept of predestination. It, we, our hackles go up at the whole mention of the subject of predestination. And the reason is, we don't understand what it means. And secondly, 
we refuse to submit to what the Scripture clearly says. And third, and I think most frighteningly, we hate the concept of predestination because our God is too small. We don't like the idea that God can be outside of our understanding, that he does things beyond our reason. Our, our, our view of God is insultingly small. It's, it's dishonoring of God. Now, when you hear the term predestination, I think most, most of us automatically think of Calvinism. If you believe in predestination, you must be a Calvinist. Technically, there's nothing in Calvin's teaching about predestination that's not also in Luther's teaching. Luther was arguing against Erasmus of, of Rotterdam, and he, he brought up this doctrine of predestination. But there's nothing in Luther's preaching or teaching about predestination that's not found in Augustine. And there's nothing in Augustine's teaching about predestination which is not found in Paul. And there's nothing in Paul's teaching about predestination which is not also found in Jesus himself. And there's nothing that Jesus taught about predestination which is not also found in Moses. If you look from the, in the Bible from beginning to end, it is all about God's choice, about God selecting one group and not selecting another, about his choosing who he will save. This, this whole concept of predestination, we can't throw it away because we don't like the word because it is clearly a biblical teaching. As I mentioned last week, look in your Bible, there's the word. I'm not making it up. So we have to have a doctrine of predestination because the word is in the Bible. The question is, what will our doctrine of predestination look like? What does our understanding of predestination lead us to? You can't say, I don't believe in predestination because the Bible clearly says it. The question is, what do you believe in the doctrine of predestination? So let's establish, first of all, that it is a biblical word. It appears over and over in Scripture. When a person comes to Christ, I want you to understand this. He correctly concludes that he has come to faith in Christ because he has made a commitment, a decision to follow Christ and accept the word. Everyone starts with, I have received, I accept, I believe. My point is that before you get to that point, the invisible work of the Holy Spirit is at work in you, bringing you to life so that when you can hear the word, you accept it. The scripture teaches that God acts first and that he sovereignly gives life to the dead. So the salvation begins not when you believe the word to be true and place your faith in Christ. That's your perspective. It begins with that. But in reality, it begins far before that when God awakens in you, when God takes the dead spirit within you and gives you life so that when you hear it, you then respond and you move irresistibly in faith towards God. Well, let's imagine what that, one, what that might look like. Uh, and this is kind of a generalization, but most of us will, will have identify with this. You go through life, man goes through life, a man goes through life, and he has no interest in spiritual things. He has no interest in God. He has, uh, uh, he, he's, he's disinterested. It's not that he's negative. He doesn't hate God from his perspective. He just has no particular interest in it. Something happens in his life, uh, a crisis, a decision point, uh, 
something that, that makes him start thinking about life's big questions, you know, like, where did life come from? Where am I going in all this? What happens after I die? You know, is there a creator? Or did all this just come into existence by itself? You begin thinking about these bigger questions. This man notices that there are other Christians around him, and he sees their foibles, their inconsistencies, but he also sees faith in them. He sees Christian virtues. He begins to read the Bible, and he begins to maybe um, go to church. He hears the gospel, and what before he heard, nothing new about the message, it was disinteresting to him before, but now he hears it, and it begins to make sense to him. It begins to woo him. It draws him in. It sounds beautiful. It, he's, he finds after a while that he's no longer thinking about Christian issues and entertaining Christian ideas. He discovers he believes those things. He accepts those to be true. And he feels God is drawing him. And at some point, he says yes to the gospel. It is at that point very much his choice. He is choosing. And yet he looks back in time and he sees that the choice that he made was because God had been arranging the circumstances and the people in his life all along, that God had been, had, had been at work arranging the events so that when he then hears the gospel, it sounds to him sweet and it sounds heavy and he's drawn inexplicably to it. That's how it happens. In his book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God, J.I. Packer points out that uh, all Christians sense that, that, that God is sovereign in salvation. The, the problem is that some of us hesitate to affirm that because deep inside it minimizes man and our wisdom and our good choice in order to make God great. And so Packer suggests that there's two facts that show that really every Christian understands that our salvation is completely due to God and not to our wisdom in choosing Him. And here's his argument. He says, in the first place, you give thanks to God for your conversion. Now, why, you, why do you do that? It's because you know in your heart that God was entirely responsible for it. You did not save yourself. He saved you. The second is that you acknowledge that God is sovereign in salvation. You pray for the conversions of others. You ask God to work on them, everything necessary for their salvation. We don't congratulate ourselves for our wise choice of Christ. Our praise and our prayers reveal our deepest conviction. On our feet, we may have arguments about it, but on our knees, we are all agreed. Now, first, Ephesians 1.11 puts this concept of predestination in this framework. It says, in him, we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will. That's probably a very powerful text. We were chosen, predestined, according to God's will. And then Ephesians 3.10 his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So much of 
contemporary evangelism gives us the impression that salvation is predicated somehow on a person's decision for Christ, that, uh, that we made the choice. But my argument is that we are not, first of all, Christians because of what we decided about Christ as much as what Christ, what God decided about us. We are able to choose him only because he first chose us according to the kind intention of his will. And probably the thing that offends us the most about this whole concept of predestination is the fact that it's not that, we, it's not that we disagree that God chose us. We're okay with that. God has the prerogative to choose us. The problem we have is that in the process of choosing some, he has to not choose others. And that we don't like. We argue, we argue that's unfair. How can, God argue, how can God offer salvation to some and not offer it to everyone else because we decided that's not fair of God? Well, let's be very clear, though, that God does make a choice. And we see that throughout all scriptures, that choices are made. And in making a choice, you are not choosing something else. David goes down to fight Goliath. He goes to the brook of Elah. He picks five smooth stones. You know what he doesn't pick? Hundreds of other stones. I did that too. I went down to the brook of Elah and I picked out, I think I got 10 because I wanted to give some away. I picked out some smooth stones. But there was a bazillion stones in that brook. You know, I chose, David chose five stones. He, in the process of choosing five, he does not choose all of the others, right? Or how about... Uh, Joshua, at the end of the Exodus, Joshua approaches the people and he says, Choose you this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So here are a plethora of gods, viable candidates for you to worship. You can choose to worship and give your attention to any of these gods you want to. But Joshua says, Make a choice to choose a God. And when you do that, you are not choosing the other gods. Joshua says, me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And he's, and he's encouraging the others, choose this one God and not choose all of the rest. Make a selection. So you have that same basic idea here in predestination, but of course that's our biggest argument with us. With it is not that he chose, our argument is that he not chose some, some other one. But Paul clearly tells us that God foreknew whom he also predestined. Now you have to understand that the goal of salvation, the goal of predestined, I should, let me rephrase that. The goal of his foreknowledge and predestination is not ultimately your salvation. That's one of the weaknesses we have. We think God's highest goal is that everyone would be saved. If God's highest goal is that everyone should be saved, and some are not saved, we have to conclude, one, God can't have what he wants. If that's your, if that's your conclusion, God is not all-powerful because he can't have what he wants. He's not omnipotent. Or we would say that God, uh, God is not good because he does not choose to save everyone. The language here has nothing to do with redemption or salvation. The language here is that God has predestined a certain number of people, verse 29, for what purpose? Not salvation, to be conformed 
into the image of his son, that we, that we would be conformed to, to look like Christ. That is the purpose of this foreknowledge and predestination. It is to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. That, by the way, is the focus everywhere and always in the Bible is, to, is our relationship to Christ, not preeminently our salvation from spending eternity in hell. Why does God then choose from all eternity to predestine a certain people to be conformed, to be like Jesus? And then you come to this next subjunctive clause, which is that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Listen to this. Predestination is not ultimately about you at all. Salvation is not ultimately about you at all. You are a gift from God to his son. You are the bride that God will present to his son, Christ. Predestination is for Christ's sake so that he looks back at his suffering and his travail and his soul is satisfied that there is a harvest to what he, for what he has done. It is not, as so many people say today, that, that Christ dies to provide a potential atonement for a potential number of people. The God of Scripture is the God who from all eternity has determined to make an effective atonement for his people so they can be adopted into his family. The only reason that we find anywhere in Scripture that anyone is saved is that we are saved for Christ's sake. Remember Jesus in the upper room, he, he thanks the Father for the people that God has given to him, and, and he says, as you have given him authority over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. All who come to faith in Christ have done so because we are to be the gifts of love that the Father gives to his Son. That is the why of predestination. In other words, it's not foreknowledge or predestination that is the primary purpose of God himself. What is the purpose? It is that from all of the mass of fallen humanity, all of the mass of perishing people, God might save for himself a company of people to be the bride of Christ and to be made like Jesus. And when we're told that we will be made like Jesus, that does not mean that we become gods. We talk about God having communicable and non-communicable attributes. Those are attributes that he shares and attributes that he does not share. So when we become like Christ, we do not share the, the attributes of omniscience, omnipresence, those kind of things. Those are always re, re, uh, reserved for God himself. You do not ever become God. You do not ever have all knowledge. When we talk about becoming like Christ, we're talking about sharing in these communicable attributes, like um, Galatians 5.22 that... Uh, I need to get started. Love, joy, peace, patience, uh, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, and self-control. Yeah. Well, anyway, you get the point. Those are the Christ-like attributes that, that God is wanting to develop in us. And we're always um, presenting ourselves um, 
for God as, as, as our reasonable service. But again, we have to ask the question, but is that fair? Uh, you understand what I'm saying, that God chooses whom he will, but of course we want to know, is that fair? Does God have the power to save everyone? Well, yeah. So he's not impotent, he is omnipotent. But is everyone saved? No, not everyone is saved. We, I think part of the problem that we have with God's selection and its fairness has to do with, uh, we think that if God offers salvation to any, he should be, offer it to all. Let's work towards that. If we were to say to God, God, we want you to be fair. We want you to be equally fair with every creature. If we wanted God to be equally fair with every creature, there would be no one saved. When you were born, because you were born into this family of Adam, this species, you were born condemned. Before you even sinned, you deserved hell because of Adam's fall and you, him being your federal head. Of course, you have, in fact, sinned. Even as Christians, your sin borders on the line of treason. Your sin is probably the worst sin because you have acted in treason to your, your king and your Lord. If we demanded that God would be equally fair with all people, no one would be saved because justice requires God to condemn the guilty. With me so far? And we could say, well, then if God is omnipotent and he can have whatever he wants, can he choose from this mass of people condemned, can he choose to save some? And you'd have to say, well, yes, that's his prerogative. He can choose to save some. The problem, again, that we have is that if he can save everyone and he doesn't save everyone, how is that fair? Again, you have come to a conclusion because your understanding of God is way too small. You think God's highest objective, what he lives and breathes for day in and day out, is the salvation of all men. That's the wrong conclusion. What God desires is his glory. And God is glorified when he chooses to extend his mercy and his love to some because it shows that God is merciful and loving and gracious and forgiving and all those attributes of God. But God is also glorified when he judges the wicked. You have no problem with that if I tell you that God intends to judge Satan and the demons, that they are going to get what they deserve. God's holiness and his justice glorify him in the condemnation of the wicked. Again, our problem in, in understanding all of this is how small our God is. Let's move on. You'll be glad to know that I'm almost done, but glancing at the clock, I see you have a whole other hour to fill, so... <laughs> Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, when we talk about calling, 
We're talking about two different things, and that's why it gets confusing to us. There is an internal, universal, general call to all people, and then there is a, a, there is a, a, a specific, effectual call um, that is specific to some. So the two kinds of call, the external, general, universal. Um, it's true that God calls all men to repent and be saved. There's a universal calling. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If anyone is thirsty, uh, let him come to me and drink. Um, there is a universal calling, a command even, for us to abandon our sin, repent, and be saved. The problem with that universal command is not in the hearing. The problem is we have absolutely no intention in our unsaved state. Left to ourselves, no man or woman is going to respond positively. They hear the call, but they turn it away because they conclude, that's not what I want. I don't want to submit to God. I don't want to answer to Him. It's not that they don't hear the call. It's that they cannot. It's not that just that they do not. They cannot respond to the call. And Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. There we are back at that pre-knowledge that God, it is required that God first extends that awakeness in us before we can respond to the message. Now, the other kind of call has to do with the internal, specific, or effectual call. And that's not just the general invitation. It becomes a specific command come to me, to the spiritual dead. Let me see if I can come up with an illustration of that. Um, let's pick Jesus and Lazarus. Lazarus is dead. He's been dead for four days. His sisters are the evangelists in this picture. Lazarus is an unbeliever. Lazarus is dead, and his sisters, the evangelists, come to the, the door, and they say, Lazarus, come on out. Lazarus, come forth. Lazarus, we really want you with us. We want you to be part of our family. You will find that you can do a lot of things alive that you couldn't do while you were dead. And we're not going to put any barriers, any hindrances to you coming to life. So if you just get up and come on out, that'll be great because then you can enjoy life with the rest of us. Now, that's the call of the, the evangelist. And what does Lazarus do? Nothing. Why not? He did. He can't respond. It's not that he won't respond. He can't respond. He's dead. Now, same scenario. Let Jesus come to the beginning of that tomb and let him call forth Lazarus, come out. And what happens? He gives not only the call, but he gives him the ability to respond to the call. And even though he's been dead for four days, he gets up and he walks out of the tomb. See, that's the difference between the general call when the evangelist says, we'd really like you to get saved. You'd really be happy if you were alive. You can dance, you can go to parties, you can ride bikes. And the call of Jesus when he commands, come forth. And Lazarus hears the call of Jesus and he comes, comes to life. It's, it's not just a mere invitation. It's a, an effectual calling. James Boyce talks about this uh, 
uh, a newspaper organization, uh, the Howard Institute or the Howard Organization. And the Howard Organization has this logo of a lighthouse and the light going out. And underneath the lighthouse logo is the words, give the people the light and they will find their way. And the idea is people stumble around in the darkness and they get lost because they can't see the way. And if you just show them the way, if you give them the light, they will stop making foolish decisions for themselves and they will start doing the right thing. You know, show them the way and they'll follow it. And that's kind of the idea that the motto suggests. What's the problem with that? When Jesus came, he was the light, or in this scenario, the lighthouse. He's showing them the way. He sends forth the light. It's not the absence of knowledge or light or someone telling you the right way. How do they respond to the light? This is the verdict. The light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And that's why Paul says there is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Uh, the next term here is justification. We won't spend a lot of time here because we have studied justification in our previous messages actually many times. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. When a person is in wrong relationship with the law, um, he is condemned, he's pronounced uh, guilty by a jury or a judge. The condemnation does not make that person guilty. It simply declares what already is. It declares them to be so. So in the same way, justification is a declaration by God which he declares a person to be in right relationship with him. Justification does not mean that you are made righteous. It is a declaration that God makes that he considers you righteous. The problem with that is you're not. You're guilty. You're a sinner. You're a fallen human being. You don't simply become righteous. And so how is God just in declaring you righteous? And the answer is he's not declaring you righteous on the basis of your righteousness. He's declaring you righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness and, he, and, and the atonement which he provides. John Stott says justification is not a synonym for amnesty. The word amnesty is like amnesia, to cause to forget. It's not a synonym for amnesty, which strictly is a pardon without principle, a forgiveness which overlooks, even forgets wrongdoing and declines to bring it to justice. No, justification is an act of justice, of gracious justice, when God justifies sinners. He's not declaring bad people to be good or saying that they're not sinners after all. He's pronouncing them legally righteous, free from any liability to have broken the law because he himself and his son has borne the penalty of their law-breaking. In other words, we are justified by his blood. Last term here is glorification. Um, that's also a word that we've looked at before when we were in uh, Romans chapter 5. Paul talks about the hope of glory. Um, we know that one day we will be free from this body of sin. We will no longer be tempted to sin. We will be glorified and we'll re re rejoice in this. 
And part of that glory is that we will be made like Jesus. Once again, not in his non-communicable attributes. We don't become God, but we become sin-free. And so we, we will manifest those communicable attributes of God. And when does that take place? Well, in some sense, it takes place when you die because you are now free from this body of sin. The death penalty has been paid. So in some sense, when you were then in his presence, um, you were glorified. But I think a better explanation is in uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, when uh, John says that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. I think the ultimate glorification comes to us when Christ returns. And assuming that you're going to die first before he returns, there will be a sense in which you are sin-free when you are with him in heaven, but not fully glorified until he comes again. And we, as being humans, we require both spirit and body. When our spirit and body is reunited at the resurrection, I think that is the time when we are ultimately glorified because when he appears, we will be like him. Carly Simon writes, you're so vain, you probably think this song is about you, don't you? And we, we snicker at that because how can a person be really that vain? But often as seasoned veteran Christians, we are so vain that we think salvation is all about me and all about the inconvenience that God had to go through in order to procure my salvation and provide for me an eternity of tremendous blessing and delight. But what if it's not all about you? Let's pray. I know, Father God, that these words uh, are resisted by many. I know that we have, some of us have been taught poorly. And many of us, our teaching about who you are is pitifully small. We confine you to what we can understand and imagine and what we would do if we were God. Whether we accept these words or not, we accept the fact that they're in the Scripture and we accept the fact that there is a doctrine of predestination that we need to understand and embrace. But ultimately, again, my objective this morning is not to sell a particular version, a, a, a particular doctrine, as much as that we are biblical Christians, not Arminians or Calvinists or Lutherans or Augustinians or whatever, but that we hold the Bible to be true and dear and that our thoughts of you are growing bigger and more worthy of the great God who loves us and has given his son to die for us. And all of these things, God, help us to ruminate on these thoughts and to bring you glory. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.